For the past two years, we have been in a sermon series called In His Steps, where we have traced the life of Christ chronologically through all four Gospels. We took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we put them as best in chronological order as we could because we wanted the context of Jesus' life, what he said, what he did. And this concept was actually based on a Japanese theologian, a book that he wrote. I know I just went off camera. Sorry, camera person. It was, it was uh, based on a book that a Japanese theologian wrote. Um, and he imagined that since Jesus walked everywhere he went, with today's story is the only exception to that, and since humans walk at about three miles an hour, that Jesus was the three-mile-an-hour God. He wasn't sprinting up and down Judea, expecting people to keep up with him. He was simply walking with purpose, but slowly enough to let people walk up to him, talk to him, and let him deal with the problems that they were facing. Instead of being in such a hurry from going from one sermon series to another, one theme to another, one catchy idea to another, we purposefully slowed down to walk three miles an hour with him. And that's what we've done for the last two years through this sermon series. We have now chronologically arrived at the final week of Jesus' life, which contained the events from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. So today we begin our new series called The Final Steps. And this first message in the series is entitled Stirred But Not Changed. Jesus traveled all over Israel, Judea, neighboring areas, preaching the gospel, performing miracles. In each town he proclaimed that God's kingdom was present with, within, with them because he was present with them. And the promise was that the Messiah, in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it wasn't some abstract idea, but it was a very concrete idea that there would, there would be a God with us, a God in flesh, a God that people could touch and talk to, and have dinner with. God was walking all over the nation. He was present with them. And he spent around three years of his ministry around these people, among these people. But the time had come for the final and most important mission. It was timed to perfection. And it confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But sadly, some people can be faced with clear and obvious proof of the truth and yet still reject it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19. The story we're reading today is called the triumphal entry. It occurs in all four Gospels, um, but we're going to look at Luke's account this morning. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and he drew near to, and, and, and I, I could not even pronounce this correctly. I've always heard Beth Page, 
it's Bethphage. All right, so if you want to impress some theologian who went to seminary and he's some Greek scholar, just say, yeah, I, I'm familiar with Bethphage. And he would go, ooh. All right, but that won't, win. It, it won't matter any now. So uh, he, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. You're like, yes, that was exciting, wasn't it? For most people, these seven verses um, are immaterial. They, uh, for most people, they add no substance to the story. And, and like most novelists these days, they provide unnecessary details that kind of prevent you from moving forward in the story. However, this is a very important story. These events, and the, one we'll, the ones we'll discuss later in the message, took place on what we call Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday. This is the, the Sunday at the beginning of the Passover week. So, why, are the, why is this story important? Why are the details of this story important? All four gospel accounts make a point to mention Jesus entered Jerusalem on a colt, a young donkey. Matthew adds the detail that Mama Donkey got to come along too. But Jesus rode on this young, unbroken, unridden colt that would have probably been ridden by a child. And Jesus is a full-grown man, about 30, 33 years old. So why is this important? Because this story gives us our very first fulfilled prophecy of Passion Week. Matthew's account of this story, the triumphal entry, uh, Matthew 21.5, he quotes the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, when uh, Zechariah says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Zechariah says that when the Messiah king comes into the city of Jerusalem, Zion, he will come into the city riding on a colt. Now, that prophecy occurred and was, was uttered, written down in 516 B.C. So the very first action on the very first day of Passion Week, Passover Week, was to fulfill a prophecy spoken more than 500 years before. Think about that. God was not willing for a single prophecy about the Messiah go unfulfilled. Even one we would consider as not significant or adding any importance to his mission. It wasn't about the manner of his death. It wasn't about his resurrection. It wasn't about his ministry. It was about how he was going to ride into uh, Jerusalem. But God prepared a man who owned donkeys 
to make sure that he had one ready that had never been ridden before so the Son of God could be taken where he needed to go all to fulfill just one little prophecy. But that prophecy wasn't just 500 years old. It was actually much older than that. When Jacob was dying around 1,500 or so years before Zechariah's prophecy, he called his sons to his bedside so he could pronounce a final blessing on them. Genesis 49, 8 through 11, it says this. Jacob said this about his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to a vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Jacob prophesied a truly remarkable thing over his son Judah. He said that a king would come from Judah's line, an eternal king, that all people would worship and obey this king, that this king would be victorious, that he would stand on the neck of all of his enemies, and that his garments would appear like they had been washed in blood, that he was the choice vine, and that a donkey's colt would be bound to it. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the eternal and victorious king. His garments are washed in blood. He is the true vine, and we are spiritually bound to him for life. And as Paul wrote that Jesus disarmed all rulers, all authorities, putting them to open shame, and triumphed over them openly by putting his foot on the devil's neck. Paul wrote in Romans 16, 28, something you should memorize, underline, highlight, screenshot, post on Instagram. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet, Romans 16, 28. Let me tell you, some of you have been living a life that the, that the enemy has just been running all over you and attacking you, attacking your health, attacking your job, attacking your finances, attacking your toilet paper supply. But isn't it good to know that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet? Hmm. And in all these prophetic promises from Zechariah all the way back to Jacob, there's a colt, a young donkey mentioned in both. The first thing we need to notice in this passage is that our mission is like that of the colt, taking Jesus and his message where it needs to go. Our mission is like that of the colt taking Jesus and his message where it needs to go. It's not our job to chart the course. 
It's not our job to determine our steps. It's not our job to plan out every little detail of our life. There's no way we could do it. Life throws us way too many issues and unforeseen problems that we could never have a foolproof plan. And if you doubt that, boy, didn't 2020 prove that to be true? Anybody who wrote out in 2015 where they see themselves five years from now got a wake-up call because nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw all of this coming, at least. And for some of us, that idea might stress us out. We want to be in control. We need to be in control. We like to be in control. I was asked recently if I have a fear of flying. I said, no, I have a fear of dying in an airplane. I'm not afraid to fly. I'm just afraid of falling. If I'm in the cockpit with the pilot, I think I'd be okay because I can talk to him. Hey, have you had a drink? How's your marriage? Are your finances in good shape? Did you take out any new life insurance policies we should be concerned about? You know, how's your vision? Do you know what every button does? That's important because there's a lot of buttons in there. And if I feel confident with this guy, all right, let's, let's go up. Now, they don't let me interview the pilot before I get on the plane. It seems a little weird when you start asking pilots questions. They start raising red flags and FBI people take you off the plane. I just wanted to make sure this guy was okay. So... We, we, we like to be in control. But you can't be in control if you are surrendered to Jesus Christ. Either you are in control or God is in control because it can't be both. And this is where I think churches and pastors go wrong. That it is not our message. It is not our programs. It's not our catchy slogans. It's not our presentation. It's not about lights and fog and lasers and crescendos and decrescendos. It's not about pastors in skinny jeans trying to look hip to bring in the crowd. It's not any of that. It's all about Jesus, his message, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his salvation, and his blood. And any church that trades what's biblical for what's trendy is preaching a false gospel. I did not die for the sins of mankind. Jesus did. So church should not be about me. You shouldn't say, you should come hear my pastor. You should say, come hear the gospel. Come hear the word. Come hear about Jesus. Because if Jesus is not enough to draw people in, I will never be. Jesus came into Jerusalem as the Messiah King, but he didn't come into the city like kings usually did. Kings normally entered the city on a horse or in a chariot. The site was designed to strike fear and awe into the population of the city. But Jesus, he once again, he didn't do things the way people expected him to, even though it was prophesied that's how he would do it. He rode into Jerusalem on a little donkey. The picture of humility. Because he knew who he was. 
he didn't need anybody else to define him. He was completely at one with the Father in perfect unity. He didn't need to ride in the city in a chariot to assert his dominance over the city. He was the creator of the universe. There had never been anymore anyone more dominant than him. He didn't need to assert his dominance over anyone. He was king, but he didn't fit the categories of kingship. He brought together majesty and meekness. If we fast forward to John's book of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, it says this, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. John is told to look for a lion, but in the midst of the throne is a lamb. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote in 1738, he said, The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. We see that Christ is compared to both. In his book, King's Cross, which I highly recommend, Tim Keller wrote King's Cross. This is what he said. In Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on the Father. But in Jesus, the result of these extremes of character is not a mental and emotional breakdown. Jesus' personality is a complete and beautiful whole. Continuing in Luke 19, verses 36 through 38, it says, And he, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As Jesus rode the donkey down the mountain towards Jerusalem, the road was already filled with pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for Passover week. They recognized Him. They threw their cloaks down in His path. They cut palm branches, laid them down. They waved them. This was an act of humility and reverence and worship. And they began worshiping him, and for once he didn't tell them to be quiet. If you read the Gospels, you know that previously he would tell people, don't tell anybody about the miracle. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. He didn't want them to publish it loudly. Now, we would think, you know, if it were us, oh, tell everybody, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, write it on your door, you know, uh, hire one of those airplanes that'll go around with the big banner, Jesus is king. He knew what was in the heart of people. He knew they wanted a political king more than they wanted a spiritual one. And he knew that if he got too popular too quickly, 
it could disrupt his plans because his mission was not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. His mission was not to be lifted up on a polished throne, but to be lifted up on a cross. His mission was not an earthly kingdom, but an eternal one. So the crowd shouted, Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. It actually comes from a group of psalms called the Hallel. These are psalms of ascent that are connected with people, pilgrims, who go up to Jerusalem for the Jewish holy days. The irony of the crowd quoting Psalm 118 specifically, the Hosanna, was that that psalm directly speaks of the Messiah being rejected and the salvation only through the acceptance of that rejected Messiah. That's the same psalm they're quoting, and they still don't get it. On Passover, Israel is commemorating their deliverance from physical slavery in Egypt. These pilgrims anticipated another deliverer, the Messiah like Moses, who would free them from Roman occupation. They didn't understand that the mission of Jesus was spiritual freedom, not political freedom. Luke 19, verses 39 through 40, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees were so upset with Jesus, and, he, and they considered the words of the crowd to be blasphemous and sacrilegious. Because at the same time, get this, this is really important. At the same time, the religious leaders were bringing a one-year-old lamb from one-year-old lamb without defect down the same road from Bethany into Jerusalem to be the lamb that would be slain on Passover for the nation. Jesus was coming from Bethany to Jerusalem on the same road, at the same time, to be the Passover lamb slain for the whole world, the once and for all sacrifice. This is why they were so angry. Jesus was upstaging their pageantry. He was, he was upstaging their lamb. The lamb was upstaging their lamb. I try to imagine Jesus riding this little donkey down the mountainside, alongside the religious leaders, walking their tiny little Passover lamb down the same road. Jesus must have been so struck with their spiritual blindness. The very men who read and studied and memorized God's word were so blind to the truth of the Messiah when he stood next to them and shared understanding. They had eyes, but they didn't want to see. They had ears, but they didn't want to hear. They had a mind to memorize the scriptures, but not a mind to understand them. And Jesus responded that if these people were quiet, all creation would cry out in worship to this God in flesh making his way into the city for the final time. Matthew's account says in Matthew 21, 10 through 11, 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was buzzing about his arrival. He had previously avoided Jerusalem for several reasons, uh, one of which he needed to get the message out to all of the small towns and villages and minister to people there. News spread a lot slower. Uh, now, if you're, in a, if you're from a small town, news travels fast. But um, it, during this time, news traveled slower between the cities. And so he needed to get to all of these small villages and preach the gospel to these people because he knew once he got to Jerusalem, word would travel very fast, and it did. So Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. The crowds declared Jesus was a prophet. And people still today only call him that. He's nothing more than a godly man. He's nothing more than a good teacher, a prophet, but not the Messiah. Regardless of the dozens of reports, eyewitness accounts, testimonies of lives changed and transformed, miracles witnessed, some people just refused to believe. The whole city was stirred. And Jesus came into the city with uproarious worship, but it wouldn't last. The same people that cried out to worship him on Sunday would cry out for his death on Friday. These same people that threw their cloaks in the road on Sunday to herald the coming of the Messiah would spit in his face and demand that the Romans crucify him on Friday. These people were stirred, but were not changed. They were excited, but not transformed. They were celebrating, but not truly worshiping. And it's not enough to sing the right songs, to say the right words, and have this external appearance of worship. In my Bible reading a while back, I read about how King David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant from where it was sitting into the city. He wanted to bring it back to Jerusalem, the city of God. The Ark of the Covenant was this beautiful box that had uh, special sacred items inside. This box represented the manifest presence of God with them, the glory of God. And so he got the people together, and he started shaking that tambourine like a good Pentecostal. And he got the city stirred up, and they began to worship. And the priests began to sacrifice animals. So many animals, blood was running down the street. And everything seemed to be going right. However, God had commanded the method of transporting the ark. And he said the ark had to be carried on poles, never on a cart. But David didn't bother look in, looking into how to bring the ark up the right way. So he put it on a cart. It's more efficient. It's easier. Well, when the oxen stumbled, a man named Uzzah reached out and grabbed the ark to ensure that it didn't fall over and dumped these sacred items on the ground, which would be terrible. He reached out and touched the ark, and God killed him instantly. God killed him because of David's disobedience. 
It's not enough to worship God exuberantly if your heart is not surrendered to Him. External worship does not trump internal surrender. Loud music does not trump inner quiet submission. Worship without obedience is not worship at all. It's just noise. Worship without an obedient heart is not worship at all. Our churches, our communities, our world, it's filled with noise when they need to be filled with surrendered people. We can easily be just like the people of Jerusalem, stirred but not changed, excited but not transformed, celebrating but not truly worshiping. Jesus tolerated this brief celebration as it was right for them to worship him. But nothing would distract, delay, or deny his divinely ordered mission. They had to turn on him to send him to the cross. One commentator wrote this. He said that this triumphal event foreshadowed the irony revealed by the ministry of Jesus during the last week of his earthly life. The Jews celebrated a religion without having a real relationship with the God they claimed to worship. And unfortunately, they missed the Messiah they had expected would someday arrive. Worship team, come on up. Only Luke provides a detail that I think is incredibly important for all of us. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. It says, And when they drew near and saw the city, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he prophesied the ultimate fate of the people and its city. And just 40 years after his prophecy, his words would come true. In A.D. 66, the Jews revolted under Roman control. Three years later, Titus, the son of Emperor Vespasian, was sent to crush this rebellion. Roman soldiers attacked Jerusalem and broke through the northern wall, but they couldn't take the city. They laid siege to it finally, and in A.D. 70, they were able to enter the severely weakened city and burn it. 600,000 Jews were killed during Titus's onslaught. Every word of Jesus' prophecy came true because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. When Jesus saw the city, he wept over it because they didn't recognize what he was doing, what he wanted to do. 
He wept over it because the Messiah they longed for, they would curse and reject. He wept over it because the people were stirred and not changed. They had accepted a form of religion, but they worshiped the customs rather than the Creator. This is an incredible warning to us all. It is still very dangerous for us to get stuck in a rut with our worship, with our programs, with our plans, and miss what God wants to do in our midst. Just like the people of Jerusalem, we can be so caught up in peripheral things that we completely miss the time of our visitation. And when we see other churches missing it, when we see pastors perverting the gospel, when we see other Christians tearing each other down and completely missing what God is trying to do in our community, our response should be the same as was Jesus, to weep over the condition of our city. When was the last time you wept over the lostness of your friends, your family, the condition of your neighborhood, the lostness of your community, your city, your state, this nation? In case you've been living in a cave for the last six months, I'll tell you that we are at the edge of a cliff. The conditions have been met for Christ's return. I shared a couple weeks ago on our Facebook page, and you can also see it on YouTube, uh, my series, The End is the Beginning. The uh, I think it was part two called The Signs of the Times. And I go through every one of the signs that Jesus said had to take place before he would return. And you can check every single one of those signs off the list. The last sign was the gospel to be preached around the world. Because of this pandemic, every church across America had to go online. And the gospel hit the internet in ways it had never done before. Missionaries around the world were sharing the gospel messages. The gospel has been preached around the world. Folks, the time of decision is now. It cannot be put off any later. It cannot be put off so you can enjoy sin for a season now. This is the time of your visitation. What will you do with Jesus? Will you be stirred and not changed? Will you conform yourself to the West world or will you let the truth of Jesus Christ transform you from the inside out? I can't make that decision for you. You must make it for yourself and you must make it every single day of your life. Is Jesus just a prophet to you or is he your Lord and Savior? worship team is going to lead us in a song. Would you stand with us this morning? I just encourage you to let this song be your anthem this week. Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sins. Save us from all the things that are weighing us down. Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You're going to lead us in this song, and then we'll close in prayer.